Welcome to episode 89 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today we get to speak to Dale Miskell, who served in the FBI for 23 years. His assignments included the Sacramento Field Office, Washington Field Office, the Cyber Division's Internet Crime Complaint Center, and the Birmingham Field Office. In this episode, Dale is interviewed about the Internet Crime Complaint Center, known as IC3, and reviews his Nigerian reshipping fraud case, where individuals are recruited to receive merchandise at their place of residence and to repackage the items for shipment to Nigeria. Unbeknownst to them, the merchandise was purchased with fraudulent credit cards. Dale Miskell traveled to Lagos, Nigeria to train police officers how to investigate this type of fraud and assisted in the first ever arrests and prosecution in Nigerian courts of online cyber scams. While assigned in Birmingham, home base to more than 430 clear defense contractors, Dale Miskell supervised the Cyber Crime Squad and developed an expertise in targeting and combating the computer hacking processes of advanced persistent threat actors. He also established and led one of the FBI's first cyber counterintelligence task forces. I'm really pleased that we had the opportunity to hear from Dale Miskell because I understand that this type of online shopping reshipping fraud continues today. And you'll understand why it's such a difficult crime to stop. It really is a matter of making the public aware, individuals aware before they're pulled into the scam. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Talking about enjoying episodes, I was the guest on two podcasts this week. I was on Gangland Wire podcast talking about not one of my cases, but the case that inspired me to write my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play. I uh, talked about this scandalous corruption case involving a Philadelphia licensing and inspection official. The host, Gary Jenkins and Aaron, are fun guys, and I had a fabulous time. So please check that out, Gangland Wire Podcast. The other podcast I was on was Best Case, Worst Case Podcast with retired agent and former FBI profiler Jim Clemente and his fabulous co-host Francie Hakes, a former federal prosecutor. The interview I did with them was pretty personal. And I talked about a surveillance, a manhunt that I was involved in very, very early in my FBI career that did not turn out very well. I have to confess that I actually recorded that interview before the show had launched. And when I heard the other worst cases presented, I thought, ugh, I'm discussing a very personal mistake I made. Nobody wants to hear me whine And I actually emailed them and questioned whether or not they wanted to run the episode. But they convinced me that talking about this would be helpful to other rookies and, you know, to show that you can learn from your mistakes and actually use that to make yourself a better investigator. And so I'm very proud of the fact that I shared my story. And I want to thank all the people such as Sam Dunn and Diane Rapalia, sorry if I mispronounced your name, Diane, who contacted me to tell me how much they enjoyed the show. Thank you. So please check out episode 29 of Best Case, Worst Case and Gangland Wire podcast. Welcome to all the new listeners who have learned about FBI Retired Case File Review and are now listening to my show. If you like what I'm doing here, don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. 
One last thing, I'm excited to announce that next week, I will finally have an episode about the Philadelphia mob. So make sure you come back next week for that. And make sure you hang around until the very end of the interview. I want to talk about a special giveaway I'm having during the month of November for FBI swag. Now here's the show. I'm excited to introduce my guest, Dale Miskell. Hey, Dale. Good afternoon. <laughs> I am so thrilled to be talking to you because I worked economic crime and I am absolutely fascinated by frauds and schemes and scams. So I know you have something really interesting for us today. Could you tell us a little bit about the case that we're going to talk about? Back in 2000, a lot of our fraud was in person or done by the emails and things of that nature. In 2004, 2005, the FBI started going uh, digital, and so did the bad guys. And so um, this fraud we're going to talk about here would be associated with online fraud and how love on the Internet led to people being defrauded of thousands of dollars. Oh, I like that. Love on the Internet. (laughs) And I know that it involved Nigeria and This summer, I spoke to a group of teachers at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, and I was talking a little bit about Nigerian letter fraud. One of the teachers raised her hand, and she said she was originally from Nigeria, and that this fraud is so embarrassing to the people of Nigeria that this is one of the things that their country is known for, fraudulent activity. But I really wasn't aware that this love on the Internet was actually coming out of Nigeria, too. I think I've heard of it from Russia and some of those countries. But Nigeria really is big in the fraud area. Well, they're smart defrauders. And by that, I mean, is they, uh, if technology changes and improves, so did their modus of operandi and their, their threat landscape, how they would have targeted someone and how they would get to their make their fraudulent purchases or obtain their fraudulent products. And so in 2000, we were all familiar with the uh, fax machine, right? Everyone would get a fax, hey, you've inherited this money, someone's died, or we need help, and everyone would get all these faxes, and they all knew that was bogus. But what happened when we started going to the Internet, nobody realized that as we all migrated to the Internet for buying things and sending out emails and talking to loved ones online, the criminal elements from organized crime to individual and individual subjects also migrated to the Internet because with the click of that button, they can traverse the world in matters of seconds. So the Nigerians and their organized crime group realized that this was an opportune vehicle for them to increase the amount of people they could contact and potentially defraud while also increasing the profits. Now, the only hiccup they had to overcome was getting a U.S.-based company to ship to Nigeria. And we both know that would not happen. So how do you remedy that? You need a middleman or a middle person or a middle woman, someone in the middle to receive those packages in the United States on your behalf so they then would forward it to you. So they'd have two ways of, of getting that person. They could maybe put up a bogus job, go online and say, hey, I need someone to help me reshipping. Or another easier way to do it would be to find love on the net. And they would go in these chat rooms like recently dumped or 40 and lonely where they would then befriend a female. They are even sometimes they were befriending guys. They're, they did not discriminate. Anyone that would participate in their unwittingly participate in their fraudulent scam, they would target them. So they would exchange a few text messages, a few emails, and then they would really sink the hooks in by telling them how much they liked them, and then you know what they would do is send them flowers, a box of candy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sure, I was bought with a fraudulent credit card, but still the thought was there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how sweet. How sweet. Yes, exactly. They're they're compassionate people. So, again, this is early in the stages of the shopping online, and people didn't realize about the fraud, especially the businesses, because they had no types of velocity checks or fraudulent checks on their uh, their systems to to worry about things that were being shipped to the United States because they haven't been defrauded and they didn't think that was a big avenue yet. So that sort of is the predication and lays the groundwork for the organized crime element there. So these 
companies that you're talking about here in the United States, these businesses knew about the potential fraud involved Mm -hmm. in shipping their products overseas. I guess they had already been burned. Well, not so much that they've already been burned, but a lot of it's cost prohibitive to ship overseas. Uh, As you see now, you know, I call our shipping, our shopping online, but we're microwave people. We want it now. Look how fast Amazon can get product out the door. And so you figure this started back in the 2000, 2004, 2005 when shopping online was in its infancy. So they wanted to, the different businesses as they competed for their online businesses, they're going to have to offer things to get you to come to their business. Well, we can get it out the door in, in, you know, in two days, one day, so I got it or one week. Back in the day, that was awesome. So as they increase their, their speed of getting out there, it improves the window for the fraudulent activity to take place to get it out the door. So that's where our middleman comes into play. All right. So tell me more about this romance, this love connection. Love on the net. It's no big surprise. Uh, what would happen was you figure they need to get the product to them. Uh, to over, by them, I mean the Nigerians, as the organized crime groups over there realize, okay, we need to get the product to us cheap and free. And, and the way they get it cheap and free is they would get someone in the United States. Let's, let's, let's look at the two avenues they have. They'll either advertise for a position, a reshipping clerk, and you'll work for them for a while. But what happens, they're going to send you a fraudulent, unbeknownst to you, a fraudulent cashier's check. Now, in the United States, when someone sends the cashier's check to them, that's cash. They don't look at it as the typical check that you and I would write to a personal check uh, because it's, it's harder to get. But what happens, these are fraudulent, So, but you don't know about that. So you'll get a check for $1,000, and they'll say, listen, half part of that's your paycheck, and part of it's to cover the shipping, and there's an extra couple hundred in there. I need you to wire back to me. But the person who's going to be left holding the key is the person who negotiated that check at the bank. Because when you go to your bank, they know you because you have an account there, and they know you just gave them a $2,000 cashier's check that in about uh, seven days is going to come back as fraudulent. And the first thing they're going to do is take your money. If you have $2,000 in your account, the bank's going to take that and make, your, make them whole. And then you're going to be out to $2,000. So tell me more about how these individuals are found. I mean, how how is it that they get involved in this shipping scam. I'm not sure if everyone understands. I do remember having somebody when I was working in the Camden RA at the Philly office, mm-hmm. having somebody who was looking for a job fall for this very scam. So if you could right. break it down to us and give us an example, a scenario of how somebody would be pulled into this. Uh, just going, It could be like a, a bloggers board, a chat board, anywhere online where they could post jobs. And or they start talking to someone. They could be in a chat room, and they could have like international shipping opportunities. Work from home. That's a big thing. Remember, working from home is kind of normal now. But back in the early 2000s, people would love to work from home. There's no such thing as telecommuting back then. Right? It was just starting. So now they realize, wow, here's an advertisement. I can work from home, and I'm a reshipping clerk. Well, what does that mean? Oh, this company overseas is doing business here, and they just need someone in the United States that they'll ship the products to their house. You don't have to do anything. And then once it comes to your house, right, your job is this. They're going to email you, and part of that email is going to be an attachment. And in that attachment, there will be shipping labels. You'll then take the shipping labels and put them on the boxes and ship them overseas. Typically, they run the scam by this way. It, when they ship it to your house, they'll use one carrier. It could be DHS, excuse me, DHL. It could be uh, FedEx. It could be whomever to get it to your house. Then once it's to your house, they're going to switch shippers. They're going to go to a different one. They like DHL internationally because they had a bigger presence over in Nigeria. So then you'll have these shipping labels. You just put it on the box, and you don't even have to call because normally the, the company, your quote-unquote company, is already arranged for the pickup. And then, then the next day, you set the boxes outside. DHL rolls in there, picks up the boxes, and sends them overseas. Now, here's how this scams also work. Sometimes they use a credit card, or sometimes they'll open up a fictitious account with DHL or the UPS. And uh, so they'll usually get up to about 90 days of shipping on the fraudulent account before that account will be closed. So in a matter of 90 days, they can get those accounts over 100 grand pretty easy shipping overseas. And since these fraudulent shipments are being sent to the victim's home, is he responsible for that too? 
depends upon what their participation is. Usually they're, they're unwitting accomplices and they don't know anything about it. So you've got the person who's picking it up. Normally they won't be held liable for the shipping charges because it's not on their account. The account will come back to another name, to another person, to some fictitious company. Okay, now the UPS company or the shipping company might contact them and see what they can figure out, but usually that's a dead end. And then what happens after a couple of days or a couple of months rather is the, the the companies that were defrauded when the original purchases will realize that, wow, that credit card after 30, 60 days after the billing cycle and didn't get paid, they realize, well, that was made with a fraudulent credit card and then they'll stop shipping to someone's address or they may even contact the people at that address and try and get them to pay the, the uh, you know, the fraudulent charges or the fraudulent purchases. Okay, and so this person thinks that they're an international shipping clerk and, you know, they do this for 60, for 30, 60, 90 days until the uh, company that was uh, a retail company right. catches on. Yes, you're right. And what's interesting about that, keep in mind, that's just the beginning of the fraud right there is, okay, they're getting the product, and now they're reshipping the product overseas. Now, that product is over in Nigeria or Ghana. It's never to come back to the United States. Now, I'm an employee, so I expect a paycheck. So here's yes. what's happening. At the end of the month, I'm going to send you a fraudulent cashier's check for a couple thousand dollars. And I'm going to tell you, listen, it's coming from a buddy of mine in the United States, and they owe me they owe me $10,000 or whatever it is. And I'll tell you what, you've done such a great job. I want you to keep your $1,000 for your salary. Remember, keep an extra $200 because you've really gotten the packages out quickly. I really appreciate that. Then take the rest of the money and wire me the remaining $8,000. They go to the bank and they do that. And guess what happens? Cashier's check, and it takes about seven days to clear. The banks is what they would do. If you're on the East Coast, they're going to issue the fraudulent cashier's check on a bank on the West Coast. That way it takes a little bit quicker. It's a little slower to get over to the, uh, you know, to that the Federal Reserve branch over there and have it cleared and realize it's fraudulent. And then the bank will come back for the money, all of it, from you, whoever negotiated that fraudulent cashier's check. Wow. So not only... Do they use the victim right. to carry out their shipping scheme, but then at the end they stick them again with a, a, a counterfeit check? Correct. Now that's a business application. We haven't even talked about the love on the love on the net. That's. I mean, I've talked to a lot of ladies that were emotionally distraught. Matter of fact, I've talked to adult children several different times about their moms because they didn't believe it was the FBI calling them and telling them that this was a scam, that your mother needs to stop shipping $10,000 over to this guy because it's a scam. Wow. Of course, in the love connection, you know, they're taking advantage of somebody uh, who is emotionally needy. But even in the one that we just talked about, the shipper shipping clerk scam, mm-hmm. they're taking advantage of somebody who needed employment, you know, who's out of a job and who thinks they have a legitimate job. Correct. Yes, they know what button to push in order to fulfill their criminal enterprise. All right, so give me a scenario or two involving the love connection. Uh, the love connection is just like it sounds, uh, a lot of people would start realizing that, wait a minute, we can have chat rooms online, we can meet people online, and I can talk to people that have the same interests as me, but these can be people that live on the other side of the U.S., or they live overseas, it could be whatever, the person has an interest. And they would start talking online and exchanging emails or text messages, and before you know it, they're they're smitten with one another, and he's saying things like, I live in Ohio, and... I'm overseas in Nigeria now working, and I'll send you some money to help out. So he'll start sending me some cashier's checks, again, fraudulent cashier's checks for the sort of help out or something like that. And and next thing you know is he's saying he's going to come see her, and, you know, he needs money for this, and would she send him money? And sometimes they'll send him the money to help out. Sometimes they say, I need to buy a visa to get out of the country, or I was in an accident, and I need money to pay for my doctor. I'm staying here longer than anticipated. They know how to sell it, and they know how to manipulate people, and they will say almost anything just to get you to to release your funds and cough up money. And so would the duration of this scheme follow the same pattern, 30, 60, 90 days of romance, and then see you later? Right. It, yeah, eventually, the people will realize, well, I'm giving and giving and giving, 
and I'm not getting much back in return from this. When, when am I going to see you? When am I going to, and, but sometimes it's, it's lasted for six months to a year. I can recall some cases that way. And some people like were engaged, even though they'd never met, okay? They were actually engaged to get married. Like I and, said, I'm emotionally needy. Yes, they're good at, you know, identifying those people online, and they they know how to manipulate them so much that they, they become hooked. Now, the thing that's unique about Nigerian schemes and you is that you actually have the opportunity to go to Nigeria to be actively involved with law enforcement in, in Nigeria to try to do something about this scheme. Tell us about your, your, your trip to Nigeria. How did that start? Well, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll make it brief here. But what, what happened? So I got promoted and I was assigned to the Internet Crime Complaint Center. And... You know, I've, I've been working fraud for years, the traditional white-collar crime fraud that we all know about and worked for years in the Bureau. And I realized all this crime that's starting to migrate to the Internet, it's basically all the same scams. Now they're just using the the Internet to help facilitate the crime. And I tell you what, I, my unit chief was Dan Larkin, great guy, and we had a great unit out the Internet Crime Commission. So we started forward thinking, and we started realizing that the way things were getting the information now in the FBI, we're getting it too late. And what I mean by that is, when somebody goes to a store or online and they buy something, we're not going to get a fraudulent report to maybe 60 days, 90 days out because it has to clear the banks, the credit cards, and then the credit card company goes, oh, that's a bad order. So by the time we get that information, it's of little use to us from the prevention and also from tracking down the culprits, the culpable individuals. So I talked to him. I said, listen, there's this new group called the Merchants Risk Council, and they're trying to get all of the your major top 100 you know, brick and mortar stores are now having an online presence. They're trying to get a, a basically a fraud initiative together where they're sharing information, they're educating, they're developing products, velocity checks, and, and technology to also improve their fraud detection. So we should start partnering with them. So I tell you, for the for Gibraltar, I flew so much on uh, U.S. Air that I always got bumped to first class. That's how many miles I was clocking, flying around the U.S., meeting with all these different companies and talking to them. And it, I tell you what, it worked out well. So now we have all these companies are going to start sharing information with the FBI that says, hey, this order here we believe is fraudulent. And they'll tell us why, and, and they'd send it to us, which would include like the IP address of the order, the email address, the shipping address, the credit card. Now, we would take that information, and we would redact what company it was because that was irrelevant. We didn't care if it was ABC company or our Miskell's company, whatever. But we could then take that information and share it amongst the other companies to realize, hey, don't shift to this address, don't use this credit card, these are bad. But we also had one commonality when we started tracking these down. We realized that all the shipments were going to Nigeria. <clears throat> so we realized, well, now maybe Nigeria is in a position to help out. We have our legal attaches, and back in the day, I think we had maybe 15 different countries we were in, and one of them happened to be Nigeria. So I picked up the phone, and I called over there, and I spoke to the legat and talked about it, and we were interested to find out that there was a new uh, agency that they had just set up over there called the Economic Crime Financial Fraud, something like that, the EFCC, and it was to help out with combating fraud in Nigeria because the Nigerian government and the Nigerian people were now realizing the impact that... Uh, the label of, of the, the country being fraud is having impact on their country. So they wanted to stop that. So I said, hey, do you think we can get them to cooperate? Because we're having all this fraudulent packages being shipped over there. And they checked around. They said, yeah, they'd love to. The only problem is they're going to need some training. I said, not a problem. We'll train them. So in 2004, yeah, I took uh, myself and three other agents. We went over to Nigeria for a week and then over to Ghana for a week. And we taught them basically our, the FBI Cyber 101 class laying the foundation for a partnership with the law enforcement agencies that are realizing that, hey, the FBI, we're here to help them. We can give them resources. We can give them training, and they can combat this issue. What were some of the things that the training consisted of? I mean, uh, you're saying it's a 101 training. Yeah. It's basically just introduction, basically how the Internet works, Okay, what evidence you can find on someone's computer uh, from the email addresses, from the IP addresses, from the logs, and then how you can go to the ISP where the Internet traffic is going through and what information the ISP will hold and show you what all, if it's not on their computer there, then you can go there and track the IP address back to their host computer in their house or if they're at a cafe. A lot of times they weren't at their houses. They, were, they would go to Internet cafes, and so they would have information there. 
Now, you had a chance to talk to the government and law enforcement officials over in Nigeria. How did they feel about being known as one of the fraud capitals of the world? Uh, from law enforcement all the way down just to the average citizen, they, they didn't like it. You know, your good citizens that were really respectful people and honest people, they were embarrassed about it because the people, the Nigerian people are great people, nice people. I had a great time all the time. I was there that they treated me really well. All right, so that's why I, I take it they agreed to, you know, work with you because they wanted to stop it as much as uh, as we did. Yeah, they did, and it actually even after we did all this, um, you know, this arrest over there, but then the next year uh, we had, uh, let's see, the director of EFCC as well as the director of the police department over in Ghana come over when we had a couple, when the FBI set up some major takedowns, online fraud takedowns, they were at presentations with the Attorney General of the United States at a press conference at the DOJ when we announced a lot of these major takedowns showing that they were participating and cooperating with us. All right. Well, tell us about those because you were actually involved in some of the arrests that uh, went down in right. Nigeria. Yeah. Just to give you some idea of how prevalent it was in the United States, we at one time during a 90-day period, we, we checked a bunch of records and, and we had about we identified about 1,500 different addresses in the United States that were receiving fraudulent purchases from online activity. Wow! So we've realized we're now we've given them training and I've been over there uh, follow up another meeting to uh, host some meetings between the different shipping companies and law enforcement to realize that hey you know they can cooperate and share information, share package data, and we can do that also from the United States, the Internet Crime Complaint Center. We were also receiving information from the shipping companies here of things that they suspected were fraudulent, and we could share that. And then that may be they could either just hold the packages there, wait for someone to come pick them up, and if they pay the tax, and maybe they arrest them. So we decided we'd go over for about 30 days, and we'd do what we call a controlled delivery. And what that means is this, is uh, I'd go to the shipping company there, it could be UPS, DHS, DHL, whoever, and uh, I'd look through the packages, and then I would send an email back to the Internet Crime Complaint Center, ones that we thought were fraudulent. And, okay, on one day, I went through 46 packages, that are all, the, all the ones that arrived one day, and they were all fraudulent. Wow. So once we got that information and we confirmed they were all fraudulent, we then the next day we would do a controlled delivery. The police officer would dress up as the... Uh, parcel delivery guy, he'd go to the house, and once they paid the taxes on it and signed for it and we delivered the packages, we then arrested them. So during a 30-day period, I think we, we arrested 17 subjects, we seized a million, little over a million dollars worth of illegally obtained products, and also during this, I, I found we recovered two, I think like two and a half million dollars of uh, fraudulent money orders, U.S. Postal money orders. Oh, wow. So where did that, is that the fee? Yes. Explain well, what the, that is. The money orders, that's how they're going to scam more money out of you. Remember, that's, they give you the fraudulent money order for $1,000, and you go and negotiate it, and you send them a couple hundred of it or 500 of it, and you keep 500 for yourself, and then they realize that it's all fraudulent. So the, the U.S. citizens left holding the liability for those funds. What city in Nigeria? Is this all in? This and, is all in Lagos. In Lagos. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about who's on the other side of the door. What does this fraudulent... Enterprise. You said it was usually Nigerian organized crime. Is it a boiler room where they're all sitting in there making these phone calls? Are you just going to somebody's house? Well, this now, keep in mind that when they're initiating the crime, they're doing it at an internet cafe. And now the way that would work is sometimes we, we did a little surveillance at some of the internet cafes, and you would see them take over like a whole row of all these computers. Uh, it could be like six or seven computers on each side of the road. So there's like 12 computers, and they're all in there ordering, doing stuff right then. Then, So now they need a legitimate address to ship it to, and that's they're going to be their home addresses because they're not worried about law enforcement showing up. Nobody's ever looked at this. No one's ever investigated this. So when we start showing up and locking people up, uh, we actually had close to some riots, and we were arresting people, taking them away. The people were upset. They didn't understand that these were criminals? Correct. They didn't understand what was going on. A lot of the neighbors would come out and, you know, they're just pleading ignorance. They don't know what's going on. And I remember one thing, the ladies were being very defensive. And law enforcement over there is a lot different than law enforcement here. Now, keep in mind, the policemen we're with, they don't have a car. So whose car they're in? They're in my car. Mine, mine's a big Chevy Suburban. It's heavy armored, right? 
and got the diplomatic plates on it. So we're locking up people, putting them in this car here with all these cops. So citizens are coming around and they're uh, they're yelling and screaming and going crazy, hysterical. And because the first two people we arrested were like 18 and 19. And matter of fact, they had their fax machine there. They were doing scams when we got there. We took the fax machine with us as well. But yeah, they knew it. And so they admit they admitted their culpability once they were interviewed by the police department. What you're saying is that the law enforcement agency did not have the same resources. I I I thought yeah. everybody, if you have a law enforcement agency, then you have your police cars and your mm-hmm. you know other resources and equipment. They would have some equipment and some cars, but it's very limited. And so when we were doing these controlled deliveries, we we, we called it the war wagon. That was our backup. The gentleman would be driving a a load of the car, delivery car, and make dog deliver the package, and then uh, we would roll in behind them with the rest. And people would fight. Uh, most every rest they were fighting on. We had people running. We had one guy handcuffed and one handcuff on. Next thing you know, he's broken loose, and he's running down the street away from the police and chases on. Wow, pretty cool. Yeah. So I don't do anything when the arrest is going on. I just watch him. So I'm watching the rest of the guy, and I go, oh, this is not going well. About that time, the guy breaks out of that fight, and he starts running. So the guy beside me takes his AK-47 off his shoulder, and he starts pointing at this guy. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how am I going to write this up? He's going to shoot this guy. So luckily, he just fires a round up in the air. So they catch this guy, and so we throw him in the car. So we're driving out of the suburban. Now, the guy in front of us is the police officer who was just delivering the package, and this is no kidding. He rolls down his window, takes out his 9-millimeter, sticks it up in the air, fires off about four shots up in the air like the old cowboys used to do in the Wild West when they were – you know, yeehaw and run out and leave the town. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, if he was in the FBI, he'd be fired before yeah, he even got back yeah. to the office. You know? So I'm like, wow. So now this leads me to a conversation I have in my car. Meanwhile, I got two policemen with me and myself and my driver. And I'm talking, say, hey, what about these bullets, guys? Do you guys don't worry about it? fire rounds up there, like where the bullet's going to go? I mean, this is a heavy populated area. And they go, they can't pronounce my name Dale. They call me Dell, like the computer. Mr. Dell. Mr. Dell, you don't need to worry about the bullet. It just goes away as he takes his hand and just flutters it like a butterfly, like, you know, like a wing of a bird, just like that, flutters it. I go, what, it just goes away? He says, yeah, it just goes away. I said, you guys never heard of terminal velocity and gravity and stuff like that? So then that left me to the conversation about gravity, how the bullet goes up and comes back down. Now, after I tell the policeman this, we drop them off. We're heading back to the consulate. And the driver, this Mr. Dell, he goes, the story you told about the bullet going up and coming back down, is that true? Wow. Yeah. Well, hopefully they got the Internet Fraud 101, and they also got the, you know, Gun Safety 101 mm-hmm. also. Yeah. And then one time we were hitting this house. We just did this delivery, and they had all kinds of stuff up in the attic. The guy goes, okay, let's go, Dale. We're going to do a search warrant. So I'm thinking, well, we're going to go to a place, write up a warrant and get it signed. I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking oh, this ought to be interesting. I'd love to see how this works, you know, the affidavits, the magistrates, how quick around this is. What we did, we just knocked on the door and said, we have a search warrant, let us in. <laughs> I, didn't, I mean, I didn't say that. I mean, that, that's their thing of a search warrant. I mean, they say search warrant. They there's nothing about them going and getting one from a court. They just knock on the door and show up and they let them in. Okay. The, yes, yeah, so they're going to go do a search but they're not executing a search warrant. Yeah. I think they have a different definition of due process. Yes, it is. So we locked mm-hmm. up all these people, but now it's time to court. We have court eventually. So let me tell you about me returning back to Nigeria to testify in a Nigerian court. Oh, yeah, so, that'd be fascinating. How many people did you arrest altogether during that 30 days that you were uh, there? 17, 17. Yeah, 17 people. So what's funny, before I can go over there, I, I wish I would have kept a copy of this letter, but I didn't. You know, you just, you know, I was a supervisor on squad, so you know I'm from LEC, so I wasn't worried about it. So uh, I get the copy of the letter because it authorized me to go over there, and it's signed by the Attorney General of the United States. And actually, the Attorney General for us and the Attorney General for Nigeria had to come up with an agreement for me before I could go in country to testify. And one of the stipulations in this testifying was that I could not be charged for perjury. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to go lie. You know, I wouldn't do that. That's my job. We never lie. But then what they're worried about is if the prosecution or not so the prosecution, but the defense alleged that I lied and tried to hold me over for that. And that's why I could not be charged for perjury. So they didn't want any fictitious, you know, charges filed against me. 
Oh, well, that was nice that they thought about that. Yeah, exactly. So so now I go to testify. So I'm at the court. Again, I'm sitting in my suburban. I had the door open. I'm reading and waiting for my time to get out. I've already met with the prosecutor. I don't know what's going to do. And uh, then all of a sudden, these four policemen show up. And they go, Mr. Dell, Mr. Dell. Because we're here for you. I go, okay, what's what's going on? He goes, I, I didn't call you. I'm trying to figure what, I'm trying to figure what they're dumb dumb about. What's going on? Oh, no, we're sorry we're late. We're, I said, why? What's going on? He goes, oh, we're here, we're here for protecting you. We're here to protect you. I said, oh, well, unbeknownst to me, somebody forgot to tell me that there was a, a hit out for me, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, so I said, oh, I wouldn't have been sitting outside with the door wide open, right? So I got my guards there. So now, so now we go to court. We start testifying. So this is a couple of days in different different hearings, stuff like that. So now, let me set the courtroom for you. It's a British colony, former British colony, so the British influence is well there. So they have the old little wooden box that you stand in, right, in the little court. So I'm standing there testifying, and I see now in each side of the courtrooms, the walls are just basically glass windows. They're like glass doors. And I see my one policeman off to one side of the door. I see one policeman inside behind me. And I see the other policeman outside, and they're walking back and forth. And I stand in front of the judge, and I'm thinking, you know, if I'm thinking you know, defensively, okay, well, if something happens here, where am I going to go? What, what can I do? Is there a weapon I can use? Because I don't have a gun. Is there a weapon? If I can get a hold of a weapon to help out, you know, stuff like that, I'm looking who's got the guns. If someone gets hurt, I can help out. And I'm realizing, man, I'm right in the middle. This guy's got his AK-47 on this side. This guy's got his. And they're going to just start spraying and praying. I'm lucky if I don't get killed by one of these guys just shooting through the room. But nothing happened. So we were able to testify and court over there is a little bit different and their justice is a little bit different too when i was there uh, five guys got convicted for murdering family members and they were sentenced to death by hanging and that was on a monday and by wednesday the gallows were up and operational oh wow oh yeah there's there's yeah don't worry about your appeal rights there so no 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 years and years of uh appealing uh, no. the death no. penalty correct yes none of, none of that so yeah, so I went over. I so with the first, I was only FBI agent, or probably any agent, you know, a U.S. agent to testify in the jury court, and we were, we prevailed, and they found guilty and stuff like that. And then I, I came back. And do you have any idea what yes. type of sentence someone would get for committing fraud in Nigeria? You know, I, I can't. Remember. I was trying to think about it. I think it wasn't. It was minimal. It was like six months to a year, or something like that. It wasn't much. Okay. It wasn't much time at all. But mainly, just the the mere fact of having it done was uh, was nice because normally nobody's ever gotten prosecuted for it. No one's ever been even arrested for it. They, you know, that's why they don't have to worry about it. Oh, so that's significant. I think we missed that. So before you went over there and taught this Internet Fraud 101 course, and before you helped them put together some cases on these 17 people that were arrested. Right. The reason this it sounds to me that the reason the scam prevailed is because nobody was investigating it there at all. Correct. Right. There was no complaints because keep in mind, all the complaints or the victims are in the United States. So there's there's no U.S. company that's contacting them to complain or stand up and have scanning as a victim. So do you have any idea what's going on now? I haven't really heard much about the shipping clerk or the Internet romance right. Is that because people are aware of it and they're more astute, they don't fall for it? Or is there a shutdown, you know, as far as law enforcement in Nigeria is concerned? To be honest with you, I think it's the totality of a lot of little things. The businesses are, are, they're more tuned, they're more astute and looking at it. I'll give you an example. I won't name the company, but this one company, when I was talking to them, they were selling like 17 pairs of shoes to this guy. And I said, listen, who buys 17 pairs of shoes online? You know, I said, you know, if you set up the velocity checks on your systems that, hey, listen, when somebody orders so many pairs of shoes, before you ship that out overnight shipping where it's gone, like on the next day, maybe you might want to send over your fraud department to have them do some extra searching, you know, on the address, the credit card company, or not the credit card company, but the credit card number and stuff like that. But I think now, I think we just have more systems in check between the credit card companies, you know, their abilities to uh, to verify the purchases, the credit card numbers are good, and, and you know, the because over there, remember there's there was an algorithm to make credit card numbers, okay, and these bad guys in Nigeria knew the algorithm, and they were creating their own credit cards over there that worked. And so, has the algorithm changed 
you know, they can't I, do that anymore? I think so. I, I don't know, but I, that would be my guess. I think between now with the different numbers, remember we have the CVV2 on the back, and now they're also asking a lot of times your zip code, that's numbers. So I, I think there's they wise up. But now we have the chip in the card, which makes it great. I mean, I know that's not applicable online, but just for in-store purchases, that's a nice safety feature. You know, that, that's really interesting. I wonder if the site of fraud has moved to another country now. If there's Eastern, a- Eastern Bloc's busy. I tell you, it brings me up. Let me share one other war story to you. When I was at WFO, we had uh, recruited a hacker. Right? And WFO, and, and for well, the audience. Well, I'm just, sorry, yes. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say uh, WFO stands for the Washington Field Office, which is the FBI office in Washington, not headquarters. Correct. And it's the only FBI field office that's always referred to with three letters, WFO. Every other field office is designated by a two-letter designation. It's a little FBI trivia right there. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we lured this guy out, and he was good at this credit card scamming big time. And he was this guy had a photographic memory. When we took him out, we were buying things like meals and stuff like that. We 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 couldn't let him be around the table. He was, we'd always take him out to the car before we paid the bill. He couldn't see any numbers, so we actually had him meeting with like some people from the credit card companies because some of the new stuff that they were supposedly bringing out. Again, this is back in two thousand two thousand one. Some of the new stuff that the credit card companies were bringing out to defeat fraud. He already knew about it and was able to talk to them about it and how he would defeat it. There's a lot of smart people out there that use the use the knowledge for bad as opposed to good. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. Sorry, I got off topic there. Yeah, that was interesting. All right, so you said you spent time in the Internet Crime Complaint Center. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, too. So tell us about the Internet Crime Complaint Center, what the purpose of it is, and whether or not, you know, if I get scammed today out of $1,000, you know, is the FBI going to help me get that back? Right. A lot of times people are, you know, they get upset at the FBI because the FBI doesn't come in and help. And they have to realize that every state, every jurisdiction in the FBI, or not jurisdiction, but every region of the courts you know, that we tie to the districts, they all have different prosecutorial guidelines based on resources and things of that nature. So to combat this, what they realize is, that, listen, we can have the Internet Crime Complaint Center, which is a partner with the National White Collar Crime Center, a nice nonprofit. So what we do is we're acting just basically as a clearinghouse where we want people to report all their suspected criminal activity to us, you know, fraudulent or whatever. And then we then can consolidate the information, which we would do. And then we say, listen, we've got 10 cases that refer to this guy, John Doe, and we got him at this address. But, you know, the, the loss isn't high enough for the FBI. But what we can do is we can make this package nice and neat and send it out to a local law enforcement agency that has more resources and they can do that. And we did that all the time. I know when I was there, I don't know what it is now, but I mean, we would get 19,000 to 20,000 complaints a month, which was, that's a lot back then. I'm sure it's more than that now. Absolutely. So we would take this, we have our, all of our analysts there, and then they would just start analyzing the data. They were trying, you know, big data analysis. Okay, let's link this together. Which could be part of the scam? Which is part of a bigger conspiracy? Oh, this guy, John Doe, is hitting here, this state, this state, this state. And then once we can get somebody up to maybe to a criminal enterprise or to a RICO potential or to a good, we can associate with an organized crime or a terrorist group or some other criminal enterprise, then we could refer that out to the FBI field office that covers that area, which is also great. It, you know, with the Internet, we can do different venues where the subject is or where all the victims were or where the victim corporation is. So it gives us some flexibility working the matters as well. Is that where some of the stats come from? Because I read recently that uh, the number was like $744 million have been lost just last year to scam artists. How do we know that? You know, I have no idea. Um, and that could be from the Internet Crime Complaint Center. That's that. Because if you have people referring there to work, that's, that's one of the numbers we would ask them, what's your loss amount? So that would be an easy number to figure out. I would think that in most cases, when you get scammed like that, you don't report it. Well, you know, that maybe, you kind of, uh, you know, you just, you're embarrassed. So what would you say to people to encourage them to report those numbers to the Internet Crime Complaint Center? 
never think of yourself as being alone of making a whoops. Whoops happens all the time. Don't worry about it. Help yourself, and maybe you can even help someone else. I'll give you an example. We had one company, when I was over in Nigeria, you know, the bureaus were good at developing sources. Well, I developed a source that was giving me information. So I was capturing the information of all these purchasings that was going on at U.S. companies from websites from a, an IP address in Nigeria. Okay, so now we got a Nigerian IP address connecting to a U.S.-based company IP address ordering stuff. And so I'm thinking, well, if this is a U.S.-based company and they don't ship to Nigeria, why are they even letting IP addresses from Nigeria touch their computers? Sound logical? I'm a common sense kind of guy. Right. So I went back to the consulate and I started calling these companies and said, hey, I said contacts there through the merchant risk council. I knew them. So I called them. I said, hey, do you guys ship outside? No, we don't ship outside the United States. Blah, blah. I said, then why are you letting foreign countries see your website and order stuff from you? They go, what? I go, yeah. I just saw a bunch of computers from Nigeria hit your company. I gave them the times, and sure enough, they went and looked. Well, they changed that. So I think people are getting a little more astute with cybersecurity and realizing that, you know, you have to lock doors, you have to close ports, you have to shut down IP traffic to your systems that if you're not shipping it overseas, then don't let those IPs even touch your system. So I think we're, I think we're working smarter. I like that. I like that a lot. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to, to share about either the Nigerian cases, fraud cases, or your work at the Internet Crime Complaint Center? Yeah, it was great work. You know, it was a great team effort. Sure, I was the tip of the spear, but in order for me to be out there and do that, there was a lot of people from the Merchant Risk Council, from all the different brick-and-mortar stores, you, your top 100 companies that are online now, were supporting me and giving me information that could identify the products as being bought fraudulently, could help me identify that and then make the case. So it's just it's just a team, and that's what I'm saying. For the citizens out there in the United States, you're part of that team too. If you can, it doesn't hurt to make a complaint. And your complaint might be the uh, the nail in the coffin that sets it up for a, an identification of the subject or the successful prosecution of a subject. Very good. All right, so tell us a little bit about you. When did you join the FBI, and why did you join the FBI? I was in fifth grade. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. I took a tour of FBI headquarters. I told my teacher during that tour, you know what? I want to be an FBI agent when I grow up. The next week, we're at the library. She comes over, hey, Dale, I found this book about the FBI. And when I'm 26 years old, I got hired by the Bureau my dream, right? So the next year, I'm back for an in-service at Quantico, so I go home to my hometown, talk to my parents. I go, I wonder if Miss Wright's still at the elementary school. So I walk over there, and sure enough, she's there. So I walk to her class. She recognizes me. She, you know, small schools back then, they knew me, they knew my parents. I said, Miss Wright, I have something to show you. She goes, what's that, Dale? So I reach in my coat pocket, and I bring out my FBI credentials, and I show her. And she just starts crying and hugs me. And I said, yeah, I said, thank you for your help. And then she introduced me to her class, and I talked a little about to the fifth graders about the FBI, my, my whole one year in the Bureau. <laughs> That's a great story, a great story. It meant so much to me. When I, when I was first office in Sacramento, I used to go to all the high schools because in that region because they're not around D.C. And once you get away from the D.C. area, life changes a lot. And so does their perspective. So I would go to the different schools and I would offer up my opportunity to go speak at their history classes or a government class when they start talking about the Constitution or the three branches of government so they can see and understand how the FBI works and how we get involved and where we get our jurisdiction and how that comes into play. But I'm also laying the foundation there for maybe future agents or just sparking that interest to someone to say, you know what, that sounds like a great job. I wouldn't mind being an FBI agent. And I tell you what, it is a great job. Great friends, great memories. It was awesome. And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Dale Miskell. You'll find a link to a FBI.gov website story about Dale's Nigerian reshipping fraud case. And you'll find a link to the Internet Crime Complaint Center so you can learn more about why it's so necessary to report online scams.
If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you at the bottom of the episode show notes at jerrywilliams.com. You'll find all the social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, you can share it directly from your device. I do not have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. Now that I am concentrating on finishing my next crime novel, I don't have as much time to read for enjoyment, but I hope to have a recommendation for you next week. Talking about next week, I have to tell you about something so cool. I'm going to FBI headquarters for a VIP tour. The group that I am going with, the Philadelphia Citizens Academy, will be touring headquarters as well as having a look at the new FBI experience. Uh, which is the new FBI museum that has multimedia exhibits and artifacts, including a number of items from notable cases that have never been seen before. I will also make a stop in the FBI Recreation Association's store, which is full of all kinds of FBI collectibles and memorabilia. So I plan to pick up a few things, which I will give away to two or three lucky members of my FBI retired case file review reader team. So if you want to participate in that giveaway, I'll have more information about it in my November email about the FBI and books, TV and movies. If you're not already a member of my reader team, and you want to join, all you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and that's J-E-R-R-I williams.com, and sign up when you see the pop-up. You'll also get a copy of my FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI written exclusively by the very agents I've interviewed on this podcast. My book, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry, is part of that reading resource, along with 30 other crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs already presented in FBI retired case file review episodes. Pay to Play is available on Amazon.com as an ebook, trade paperback, and audiobook. The audiobook is also available on audible.com and iTunes. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.